Good leaders operate from this place of empathy and they're always sort of thinking about how they build trust and they're always thinking of the greater picture and something bigger than themselves. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr., In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. Matt Mosley is a communications specialist, and he has decades of experience at the intersection of public policy, business, and government. He's managed many public affairs projects and campaigns for organizations and companies, and today he is the author of the book just released this year called Ignition. He is also running the Ignition Strategy Group here in Boulder. He has completed four first-ever record adventure swims, which we are so excited to talk to him about today. And this is the subject of the documentary Dancing in the Water. And he lives here in Boulder, Colorado with his wife and two children. Matt, let's start with an overview of your background. As I, as I dug into it, it, it sure is fascinating. And so before we get into about all these long distance swims that you do, let's talk about how you got involved with CU and the Center for Leadership. Well, you bet. Well, through my work in public affairs, We do a lot of work with clients all over the place, and I have been very fortunate to tap into the president's leadership class at CU, and they have, uh, you know, I've got a a steady funnel of really top-notch, excellent students who come in and they're interns, and they sometimes work for me for several years after, go on to do great things, Um, and I sometimes speak to Gordon Riggle's uh, class in the business department. And then I'm also on the board of advisors for the Center for Leadership. Uh, And I also came here and got my master's degree in public policy. So great connection with the university. What what drives that, Matt? Why why do you take time out of your, your day to be involved like that? From my earliest beginnings in my work and my career, I believe that Being involved and being engaged is one of the most important gifts and the most important things we can do in our careers and our lives. And I I actually wrote this entire book, Ignition, um, which is the call to action is to be a participant in life and not just be a spectator and stand on the edges. And you know, we are facing so many critical problems right now. I think water is one of the most critical issues of our time. And that's not just because I'm a swimmer, It's just because our rivers are drying up. We have public education issues. We have transportation issues and healthcare, affordable housing and homelessness. There's a lot of things facing us today as a civilization that we need to buckle down and figure out. And the only way we're gonna do that is to be engaged and, and to talk about it with each other. And that's why communications is so important to leadership. Since you brought up the book, let's talk about it for a minute. Uh, the book is called Ignition, Superior Communication Strategies for Creating Stronger Connections. 
That's a heck of a title, Matt. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about, uh, a little more about what the book is about, why you wrote it, um, and and what what why should people go out and read it? I started the book six years ago. It was actually six years ago, maybe today, hmm. to tell you the truth, because it was a speech that I gave. I wouldn't even call it a speech so much as a talk at center camp at Burning Man. And it was called Gonzo Communications. <laughs> and it was about this very thing that, you know, Gonzo really meant putting yourself in the story. It, it, was, it meant being engaged. And so I worked on this book for six years. And what drove the, the underlying question was, if we live in a society that is so hyper-connected that we can do this podcast here today from all different corners of the, of the earth if we wanted to, but yet people feel so alone and isolated. And I've seen this in my work with health care and mental health where, you know, things are, you know, all really on the rise in terms of youth suicide and, and mental health. So why is that? Why are we so disconnected when we're so hyperconnected? And I do believe through my work with CEOs and throughout my 25 year career in politics and in communications is that communication is the secret sauce for leadership and success, both professionally and personally. So that's why I wrote the book. And what does that mean to communicate? I mean, I think we yeah. think of, you know, obviously having this conversation, that's communicating, but what other forms of communication are there? Well, let's boil it down from the earliest days. And I talk about this in the first part of the book um, where Paleontologists and others have discovered that our Homo sapiens were not the strongest. We weren't, we weren't the you know the most powerful creatures on the block, but there were. We did have the ability to communicate with each other and collaborate. And throughout our entire development as a species, this has been our secret sauce. This has been what has allowed us to achieve dominion on this planet. And it might actually be this thing that saves us, saves us from things like the ravages of climate change, where or drought, where we have to figure out how to use our water and that we need to communicate and get along better instead of just quickly going to war. You know, if you think about it in our bodies, when our cells don't communicate, it's called cancer. Mm. And in a relationship, when spouses don't communicate, it can lead to divorce. And in nations that don't communicate, it's war. So I believe that there's a fundamental need, you know, and everybody, it's kind of like drinking water, right? Everybody says communications, duh, isn't that so obvious? But yet, why are people so bad at it? And throughout my book, I have example after example of really smart people saying stupid things that cost billions of dollars for companies, destroy lives, um, and people can die. Wow. Yeah. I, and this is, I'm guessing the work that you come in and do, uh, through the ignition strategy group. Sorry, I was trying to remember it cause it's, it's so similar to the book name, but the, the strategy group, this, mm -hmm. is this what you do when you come into yeah. corporations and help with this? Yeah. In organizations and, and companies, and also just, it could be, you know, I work with the YMCA, I work okay. with American rivers. Uh, American Rivers, it's all about protecting rivers and stopping needless hydropower projects and keeping rivers free flowing. For the Colorado Education Association, we 
led a massive campaign to increase education funding, public education funding. So entities that have a goal in mind of what they need to accomplish, sometimes it's stopping something and sometimes it's being very proactive and getting something done, which is what I really enjoy. And the whole second part of the book, I talk a lot about communications planning. Right. You say those two words and people are like, eyes glaze over. <laughs> totally. But, but what it does is that I believe that I can take any leader of any organization and in 15 minutes make them a better communicator. What would be kind of, and you don't have to give away your secret sauce here, um, but what is an example of how that would work? Um, you know, someone says, uh, great, I've built this company. It's, it's going well, but um, I'm being told that there's some communication problems going on that's affecting culture, that's affecting morale. How do you come in and, and kind of work with that person? Sure. Let's say that you may have an external threat like AT&T, perhaps, where people are attacking 5G and you need to go out there and tell people that 5G is going to be okay and it's the future of communications. Or you might be a utility company that a municipality is trying to take them over as and become their, their own utility company, which is has been discussed in Boulder before. And so I would go to that company or the organizational leader or whoever I'm working with, and we might, you know, this happens all the time, mate, Matt, we're really in trouble here. Can we go out for a beer? And so, you know, it's kind of almost turning over the back of the napkin and saying, okay, first, Tara, where do we want to go? Like, what's the what's the issue we're solving for? If we're at point A, where is point B? Now, that answer is it seems very simple, but it's not always that clear to people. Uh, what do you want to have accomplished? Like, what do we need to do? Because then, and only then can we say, all right, we need to ask ourselves three questions. And look, these three questions are just as relevant in working with the White House on a city council campaign or a campaign to win the heart of a loved one. Mm. So you ask yourself three questions. When you know where you wanna go, like, hey, I wanna go on a date with this woman. Well, you would ask yourself, what's my message? You know, and this is, this is the history of all the research and the context that is crystallized into the best, most appropriate thought for that moment. Now, Books have been written about this. This is where your polling and research comes in. The next question you would ask is, who am I saying it to? What's my audience? Now, that might seem like a simple question as well. Like, okay, if I'm just trying to go on a date, maybe it's, it's you know, the woman. Uh, for an issue that I'm working on for a client right now, or we have a single person who is our target, and that's the governor. But then underneath that, you can say, okay, well, the woman actually has many other friends who know me and maybe that they could talk to me or maybe I could talk to her brother or, you know, you start the kind of delineating how you can sort of get to that target. And there's lots of different ways. And in our business, we call those third party validators mm. you know, who can talk about you better than you can talk about yourself, which is most people, by the way. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know? um, and then lastly, this is the fun part, which is tactics. What are the specific things I can do that will get me to, from point A to point B? Having this is the message, these are the targets, and then we want to design what those tactics would be to get there. And that's a lot of fun. You know, there's now with social media and whatnot, there's just so many different ways 
to to talk to people. Um, and when I say communicate too, I'm not saying that we are always should just be talking because active listening is really important too. And we'll we'll get there in a in a minute. But those three questions combined form a communications plan. And that could be as detailed from a 60 page document for a big client that's a years long process. And it could be at a bar on the back of the napkin that just says, hey, Ron, this is how we're going to get you there. And, you know, we're going to get you that date. Right. And like, let's. And so the just the the act of thinking about those questions and a framework already puts you ahead of most people in the game. Matt, let's go back to, you know, you said we're we're more disconnected now. And I think Tara and I both agree. Do you, you get the sense I, I'm, I'm connecting the dots here. You get the sense that we're getting worse at communication and you know, I don't want to pick on the, gener the, 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 the younger generation per se, because I think this is across uh, a lot of generations, but for example, let's look at something as informal as like a text message. Can we communicate effectively through text messages or in your perfect world would text messages just go away? <laughs> no, I think they are appropriate in certain circumstances like, hey, I'm running five minutes late for a podcast or something like that. You okay. know? But in terms of winning a date's heart, probably not. You know, and that's where I go back to matching the right tactics to the right situation where, you know, a lot of people say things on mediums that don't really match what they need to be saying, right? Text is a great one where that's not a place for real emotional conversations and things that need to get done. Um, that's, you know, it's a place to check in or something. You know, I, I don't know if people are getting worse at communications as much as they are not engaged with each other and seem to be losing the sort of personal relationships that make the world go round. And we have to look no further than the misbehavior on airlines these days. You know, what is happening to people? It's like, behave, you know, COVID like stress. be a team player. So it just, it, it amazes me. And so that's where I think if people could think about it a little bit more, they would be a lot better at it. And that's why I strove to um, come up with a, about, there's about a dozen different strategies in the book for how people can think about being better at what they do and, and being better communicators so that they can live a more fulfilling life, both mm. personally and professionally. Do you get a sense of why people aren't engaging? Is it because they don't know how to do this or is it because as we like, to, uh, we like to talk about, is it because it's hard? Well, you know, um, I think all of it, it's technology. Technology makes it harder. I don't know if people just don't care as much but they seem to be very bewildered, you know, and just very bewildered by all of the, you know, and overwhelmed. And so that provokes a little bit of uncertainty within their own sort of psyche. But I also think that there's a healthy amount of more fear these days. Um, you know, having worked with a doctor of fear and loathing, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, I think he would be pretty shocked to be how, you know, there's a lot of turmoil in the world with, there's forest fires in Afghanistan and, and presidential elections and all sorts of stuff that makes people more fearful. And that might be why people are a little bit more withdrawn, right? And when they do come out of their shell, it's because they're provoked in some sort of way. It's not because they're real happy. I, I don't know. I'm just theorizing about that. But that's something to really think about. 
Interesting. How much of this do you think is uh, pulling us even further down that hole with the with what's what we've all been dealing with the last year and a half? How does COVID shine a light on what you're talking about versus like how much um, more are we going to have to do to get out of that? Do you think? Yep. Yep. We don't have a chapter in the book. uh, It's called state of the world desperate as usual. (laughs) And, and, and where I go with that is that sure there is sort of the pandemic times and right at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember uh, March before last doing quite a bit of writing and speaking on pandemic response and how good leaders could be empathetic and building trust during these periods of chaos. And I think you see that in, in really good leaders where, you know, it's not a go it alone approach and that they are, that they know best. I find that good leaders that I work with are very, very empathetic. They have a very high degree of emotional intelligence and situational awareness to the extent where they can be in a situation where with many different interests, right? Like let's say you're Excel Energy or utility company who I do a lot of work with, and you could be in a meeting with regulatory, government affairs, the communications folks, legal, the C-suite, a couple other people who you wouldn't even be sure what they do, but um, you know, and you're, and they all have interests of what they need to get accomplished to be good at their jobs. And, I think good CEOs and good leaders, they're very attuned to that interest and so that they're working to bring that together to move that down the down the road instead of like, all right, these are my soldiers, but I'm just gonna go do what I need to do and not bring them along. And so I think that's a real distinguishing factor, not just in COVID and pandemic times and this trust and empathy with their with their stakeholders and their and their consumers, but it's really a it's really a, a lesson we keep learning over and over again. And I have very the fortunate um, circumstance of my neighbor wrote, Carol Byerly, who a, was a history professor at CU, wrote the definitive book for the army on the 1918 pandemic. And you know, we were, we're having these conversations on our front porch in the rain as I was writing my book. And she said, you know, Matt, we have been learning these lessons for over a century and it's always the same, you know, truth and science versus politics and what do people believe? And we're seeing that with vaccines right now play out. There's science, there's politics, there's story involved and there's so much freedom and tied up in these, you know, in this language and semantics. It's, it's, it's kind of fascinating if it wasn't so sort of tragic. So true. Yeah, let, let's stick with the COVID thing. You know, as I have I've watched this, uh, you know, unfold as everybody has, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of uh, probably critical feedback for the CDC, right? And they're messaging around, um, you know, should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? You know, is six feet away? Is that, you know, so there's a lot of mixed messaging. And, and I understand that things are changing. It's, it's a, you know, it's a changing battlefield. As a communications you know, expert. What do you have any critiques for the CDC? How could they have done this better? You know, I don't know if I'm going to get into specific critiques. You know, I think um, for some people they did great. For some people they didn't do so well. Uh, you know, it depends on which side you maybe were on on some of the things that they were saying. I think that sometimes they lacked some consistency. You know, especially with masks. I think it should have been like 
you wear masks and that's what you do. And you, that's how you, that's how you roll. Um, in my book also, I talk about the World Health Organization quite a bit and they have developed a, a system that they call, you know, where they develop a single overarching communications objective. And that, that is meant to put scientists and doctors who like to talk way up here and we're all like, so what do they want us to do? You know, and so I think they've realized this, that they need to improve their communications and to get, so they call it the point. And it's, it's getting doctors to get right to the point of what do people need to do? And then you can kind of fill them in. All right, this is why, this is what's happening. It gets back to what you're saying right there about the confusion over, should I wear a mask and when and where? And, you know, I think there was some confusion over like what kind of vaccines to get and who to get what. And, um, you know, I think Anthony Fauci did a, a wonderful job in terms of what he had to work with. But, you know, it's, at some points we just, we also need to, to listen to the science too and not get too wrapped up in the, in the politics of it. And that's where I see good leaders they don't mess a lot with the politics. They go with the facts and they sort of drive, they drive a story based upon that narrative and, you know, not just using the facts, but driving the story of, hey, I need you to do this and this is why. And be very clear about that. What do you think some of the biggest failures are in this area, regardless of what industry it is, or if it's a CEO of a small mm -hmm. company or of a huge corporation that you, if you had a group of these leaders in the room, just listening to you right now, what could you say, be on the lookout for this failure in communicating right now in today's sure. ecosystem? Yep. Well, you know, you get back to the technology and, you know, there's people are always sort of recording and they're always sort of on and you have to remember that. And so in, in Ignition, I recount several different instances of really smart people, CEOs saying just one or two wrong sentences. You know, um, I have an example of the CEO, Ken Glassman of, of CrossFit. And he said, you know, nobody's crying for George Floyd. Black lives don't matter around here. And, you know, he's had 300 franchise owners from around the world on the phone, or I don't know how many, but a lot. And people were just aghast. And overnight, he was forced out. A $4 billion company was in tatters. And I have a good friend from Boulder, Eric Rosa, uh, who swept in and bought it for pennies on the dollar. Hmm. So, you know, these sort of simple statements can just cause catastrophic damage. You know, we've seen this with... Um, how Starbucks, uh, you know, initially responded to some racial incidences and Denny's and other places like that. And so I would say to, to answer your question is that if I had a group of leaders in a room, I would say you, you've got to show that you care because indifference is the worst thing. You know, it's like so um, I, there's a chart in the book, but it's, you know, it's acknowledgement um solution resolution you know you sort of you can't begin to solve something until you acknowledge it right and i i won't work with clients who want to you know put things under the rug or you know because i believe that being proactive and getting out there and telling your story even you know hey look it's a tough one and we've seen that over the last year right so many companies like hey 
we're running behind on things. Supply chains are mixed up. We don't have the labor pool, so we can't get to your house to fix something as fast as we would normally. And people just having to deal with that, you know? And But the important thing is that people communicate about it and not just leave you hanging, right? That's the worst part. Oh yeah, I think this has been the year or even just probably the last six months more than any other time of people having to talk about things in the workplace that we have never really had to talk about or shed light on, right? Yeah. <laughs> what a challenge. And the workplace itself has changed, you know, it's like it just vastly. Yeah, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm zeroing in on something you're talking about here and you used this word earlier. And I think this was an emerging idea in leadership before COVID and, and that is empathy empathy from our leaders. And I really think it's like throwing gasoline on the fire right now during COVID. I think, you know, employees uh, have said enough. And we see this with, you know, the great resignation. Everybody's quitting because they feel like they're not being treated well. And so do you agree with that, that empathy is going to be maybe a superpower for leaders as they move, as they move forward? Absolutely. And I talk a lot about that in, especially when I'm doing any sort of coaching or, in crafting a response for somebody, let's say a, a statement for the media, always looking to make that connection with people. And, and good leaders, I will tell you, I, you know, in my experience, that is that they're always thinking of the greater picture beyond themselves. You know, they're not just looking out for their hide, they're looking out for the whole enterprise. And so it's where I also, you know, when I talk to students, especially, and they're looking to create, you know, how do I get involved? How do I create meaning and purpose? How do I create change and, and do something that I can feel good about in the world? And that is, I, I always say, you know, look for something that's, that's going to create something bigger than yourself. It's so that that's not just earning a paycheck right? It's not just making a pile of money unless you can do something really good with that money. Um, it's thinking of ways, you know, and for me, uh, I manifest that through swimming rivers and lakes and oceans and long distance swims, and then bringing attention to that body of water and why it's in trouble and, and what can be done to save it. And so I think looking for things that are greater than yourselves, that's a really good place to be in life. Let's talk about some of the swimming you've done. I know June, besides being the month of releasing your new book, uh, June was a big month for you. Tell us what happened. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, it's a big story, I think. So on June 27th, I had teamed up with American Rivers and a team of 16 people. And I did the first swim down the Green River through Canyonlands. And uh, it took four, it was 40 miles and it was 14 hours, 36 minutes of swimming. You know, I trained for it for a number of years and thought about it. And um, it, the place holds a very special place in my heart. We had been going down there for 26 years with my family. My wife and I got engaged at the confluence of the green in the Colorado. Uh, so I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time and um, finally came to the point of, Every, all the stars have aligned, everybody's there. And as I'm putting my toes in the water, it's the lowest flows ever recorded in the river. And so it made the swim really hard. I had to, to scrape bottom quite a bit. Um, mm. 
I usually don't stand up and walk if I don't, you know, that's really not, you're not supposed to do that in, in open water swimming. But, you know, when the water's six inches deep, you don't really have a <laughs> much of a choice, right? And there were rock sandbars that were, you know, kind of got washed up against. So it made this one really challenging. And uh, there's a woman from Pixar, Dana Frankoff, who's making a short film called Silent River about it. And it's very emotional for me because you know, I've swam all around the world. I swim in all sorts of bodies of water. I've, this was my fifth uh, kind of first ever, I don't really like to call them world records, but for lack of a better word, no one's ever done them. And maybe because they're just, <laughs> just too crazy or was, I don't know. But, uh, you know, where the, the river was really in trouble and mm. you see the physical the physicalness of what is happening with the low waters. And I, I mean, you know, I, I kind of channel being a fish when I swim for a long time and you're out there for 12, 14 hours, you feel like a fish. And then I, you know, to feel what it would feel like to be literally washed out as a fish, you know, that you, you couldn't go anymore. And that's what happened to me. I was trying to make it to the confluence, which would have been 52 miles but we ran out of space, we ran out of time, we ran out of flow, and uh, we had a safety plan that if I wasn't gonna make the confluence by shortly after dark, which was around 10 o'clock, then they were gonna pull me. And so as it was, we paddled in at 11.30 at night. So it, it was a great swim and it was awesome, but it was also pretty sad in terms of what's happening with, with our water on, on the planet. Yeah, boy, I'm an endurance athlete. I've done an Ironman and in Ironman, we have to do a 2.4 mile swim. And I remember that was the, the one and only time I've swam 2.4 miles. And I remember thinking, is this ever going to end? It felt like I was swimming forever. I can't even wrap my mind around what you did uh, to, to swim that long and that far. It's just, it's mind boggling. Let me, let me stay on this idea though, of doing hard things. Yeah. What is it? I mean, why do you do that, man? Why, why go out and do something like, you know, some of the things you've done and what do you learn from that? Why do you do it? And what do you learn from it? Probably the easiest answer is to just stay sane and not go completely crazy in this world and have something to hold on <laughs> to and train for. But, but in general, there is something about these longer swims. When, when I came, I swam as a kid and then you know, through, I wasn't getting a college scholarship. So I kind of dropped out, but then I, when I went to graduate school at CU, I came back to it and went down the, the Colorado river with my then fiance. And, uh, it was like taking away the lane line and taking away the clock and, and even the coach, you know, like nobody's yelling at you on the deck. And it's sort of like akin to, I equate it to going hiking on the trails versus running on a track totally different animal, right? Just completely different way of moving across the landscape. And so it really spoke to me and I just fell in love with it. And as I kept going further and further, I started racing 10K swimming races. And I'll tell you, that's why I like to do those races because it, it weeds out all the Ironman triathletes. <laughs> we, we stop they at 2.4 miles. They never go past 5K. <laughs> it's like, no way. <laughs> And so uh, it's pretty funny. But yeah, and so uh, as I kept going longer and longer distances, and I trained with a gentleman named Mark Williams, who was a former 
F-16 fighter pilot. And Mark has one of the distinctions of being one of the last Americans to see uh, air combat when he was in fighting, doing his service in Baghdad. And Mark was very astute at mental conditioning. He works with a lot of first responders, um, a lot of military veterans on PTSD and using mindfulness to, you know, sort of regulate that emotional control, um, calm the parasympathetic nervous system. And so, you know, we would do a lot of visualization and mental conditioning sessions to not only visualize the swim, but how do you get your mind to stay super sharp for long periods of time? And, and you can just stay in this place and not be distracted by, you know, a lot of pain and monotony and get frustrated, right? And so using, so I do a lot of mindfulness, a lot of, it, it's rooted in meditation, but I, I hesitate to call it that because with Mark, it's like doing, going to the gym with your, with your mind, you know, it's like sets for the mind, literally. And I could talk about some of the specific exercises that we do, but that's really helpful. So I have, you know, one of my swimming mantras is, you know, light as a feather. And I have a visualization of just thinking of myself as this little white feather floating along across the river, endlessly efficient, almost weightless, and just moving with divine intervention until it's over. <laughs> and just thinking of that light as a feather, light as a feather, and just coming back to that sort of mantra as much as you can, and just staying there. And so it takes practice. Takes a lot of practice. Do you think that makes you a better leader? Well, interestingly, what I've done with open water swimming is apply a lot of the principles from the swimming to the boardroom or to an organization where, you know, putting some of those lessons or putting the right team together that you need, you know, there's things that I can't do in the water. So other people need to do them. You need the right pilots, nutrition. There's navigation, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Um, there's communications, right? There's perseverance that you learn and, you know, the doing the right training and the preparation, you know, it took years to put these things together, to have, the, to have that patience to, to let them develop and, and ripen to the right place. Also setting audacious goals, you know, and finding swims that for me, not, People are always like, when are you going to do the English channel? <laughs> that sounds like the most, like, I don't know, not fun swim I could think of. It's I was waiting to see cold. what you were going to say. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I didn't want to disparage it because it's a great swim, but it's oily, it's cold, there's jellyfish, there's ships. You know, let's go find some place that nobody's ever swam before that's really beautiful that needs saving and protecting. And so that's, that's my approach. So yes, I do think that I can take some of those things from um, swimming and apply them to other places in life. And one of those two, the lastly, is um, I have a chapter in the book about a meeting meditation. And I might be crazy, but are one of the few people that actually likes meetings. I love to go to meetings because I think that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where deliverables happen, you know, um, Lots of things can happen in meetings. And so I like to think about before I walk in, take a few deep belly breaths and ask, what am I bringing of value here? Why am I here? And being really present in that. And then once the meeting starts, you're not on your phone, 
and you're not on your laptop, but you're asking yourself, what does everybody else, what does Tara bring to this meeting? Why is she here? What does Ron bring? And you know, the value, so you're just really keying in on that. So then when it does come time for you to say something, and you should always say something if you're invited to a meeting, um, unless it's like, you know, 60 people or something, but when it's time for you to speak your mind and add something of value, you know what's going on. You're very into that and you've, you've been paying attention because you haven't been one of the people that you know are most in meetings that are on their phones, which drives me nuts. Uh, so I think there are ways, you know, and I always consider meetings sort of like an improvisational theater. You know, it's live theater that can happen. We have a, we have a little bit of a script with an agenda, but within that, you know, anything can happen. And so we work with an improv coach. Her name's Alyssa Allberg and bring her into certain situations and, and help people to think about how they approach situations, which is very, very interesting, right? So she posed the question in improv, right? That would apply to us in our leadership roles. How do you support somebody you don't agree with? Really profound question. But she said the answer there, just as it is on the stage in the theater and and film is that when somebody gives you a bad idea, you make it better. She used the example like if if somebody's up on an improv stage with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, and they throw out a, a goofball idea that falls flat, they're so good you can bet that they're going to make it the funniest thing you've ever seen in your life. And so they may not work with the person again after that, but that they're going to take the situation and make it better. And I think that's what we have a responsibility to do as well. And I really believe, Ron, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier, but that is one of the key hallmarks and ingredients of good leadership is people that take things and they make them better. You're speaking my language. This is, uh, this is what we teach entrepreneurs, right? It's not about this idea doesn't work. It's how do we adapt it to make it better? I'm going to steal this if you don't mind, Matt, and use it in one Absolutely. of my classrooms. <laughs> and I'm going to start my class with my 35 students and say, what value are you bringing to this meeting today? <laughs> well, because... ask the question first. How do you support somebody you don't agree with? I like that too. <laughs> because it's like, huh? Because we all have that in our, you know, you go through lives, oh, that, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. Now, of course, we can make choices. We can choose to agree or not agree with certain things. But when we have a responsibility to something, it is our responsibility to make things better. That, uh, that leads us into our last question, which might tag on to that. I don't know. We'll see what you're going to say, which is on the frontier of leadership. Where do you see that we're heading or need to head? What do you see as being the big thing in the future when it comes to leadership? Yep. Well, we've kind of been touching on it in a lot of our answers throughout. But I believe good leaders these days and going forward are not going to be the leaders who are really top down and who say, this is the marching orders. Everybody fall in line. This is what we're doing. Um, I think those days are a little bit past us and good leaders are evolving to much more, um, and I know you all teach this in your classes, it's much more organizational management. It's much more leading from a place of empathy and compassion. And I think that has a lot to do. We haven't talked about compassion today yet, but I mean, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, empathy and compassion, but this understanding 
really good leaders ask themselves, what do people expect of me? You know, what do my shareholders expect? What do my vendors expect? What do my employees need from me to feel that they are invested here and that they understand where point B is and what our mission is as an organization? That is not, it sounds very simple in the corporate world. It's not, you know, it's, it can be much more difficult to get everybody singing from the same script. So I think good leaders operate from this place of empathy and they're always sort of thinking about how they build trust and they're always thinking of the greater picture and something bigger than themselves. That's where I see the frontier of leadership. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.